1: Tuesday, July 8th, 2014, from Slate It's the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. My people are destroyed by lack of hashtag judgment. It's here, the worst, the most flippant, the most egregious hashtag I've ever seen. Hot car death. The case is unbelievably tragic. A guy named Justin Ross Harris left, prosecutors say, intentionally left his 22-month-old son in the car, and the son died. One of the very best pieces of journalism I've ever read about this issue was by Gene Weingarten from The Washington Post. He won a Pulitzer for it in 2010. The piece was called Fatal Distraction, subhead. Forgetting a child in the backseat of a car is a horrifying mistake. Is it a crime? And the piece sensitively, comprehensively seeks to answer that question. But you can't really answer it. As Weingarten points out, equal sets of circumstances get one parent in one jurisdiction charged and another not charged. In this Georgia case, the parent was charged. Prosecutors are building a case against him based on Internet searches and the fact that he was texting, sexting with women, exchanging explicit messages with different women. So this trial, even the grand jury phase, has acquired the hashtag hot car death. I've got to think that a lot of people found out about the hashtag when they were looking up last week's meme, hot mugshot guy, but this is not hot mugshot guy. This is the saddest story in the world with a father who's either a horrible monster or who made the worst mistake of his life and is now being tortured over and over for that mistake. Many of those interested in hot car death claim to care about children. I'm sure they do. But they're also the same army of clucking tongues who flock to every human interest murder story on CNN Headline News. To wit, here's an article on the CNN Headline News site. Is Justin Ross Harris the next Casey Anthony? Basic summary. We sure hope so. And of course, the mother hen leading the clucking chorus is the gruesome Nancy Grace, who evinces a concern for victims while presiding over a tableau of talking heads, who frame every defense lawyer as in league with the devil, and every suspect is guilty until proven more guilty by her, the Torquemada of tertiary cable television talk. I, by the way, am not one of those people who turn up my nose at quality coverage of high-profile murder cases, but the tone, the tone... On Twitter today, the top pick when you put in the hashtag HotcarDeath is from someone named Lori Holmes, news anchor, legal commentator, author mother. She's tweeting a picture of herself alongside five other beautiful, beaming, perfectly quaffed ladies, among them Vanessa B of hiphophollywood.com and a couple of TV psychologists. And she's saying, Ready to go live with Dr. Drew in three min, hashtag HotcarDeath. What can I do? Sigh. I'm just going to sigh. But on the show today, in the spiel, I will bark my own warning, I will program my own drum machine, I will bugle my own cornet, and the steamy love letters of the least steamy president you've ever thought of. But first, news about the Boston College Oral History Project, where former members of the IRA talked to university researchers in the name of history, then all hell broke loose. Now, some of the people who talked are getting their histories back, and in one case, just burning the files. In Northern Ireland, some of the people who talked are being called touts, which is a word that, as we'll soon hear, can actually get you killed. The Boston College Oral History Project was an effort to record and collect the remembrances, accounts and testimonies of observers and at times combatants in the bloody troubles of Northern Ireland. Authorities in Northern Ireland and Great Britain didn't view the oral history project that way. They regarded the testimonies from 26 members of the IRA and 20 members of the rival Ulster Volunteer Force as potential legal testimony and the witnesses as literal legal witnesses. After all, a lot of the content of the interview centered around crimes, including murder, for which the statute of limitations has not run out. This case involves some issues of academic freedom. It's caught up in the still raw sentiments in Northern Ireland and can be rightly questioned as poorly conceived. collision between the academy and the real world. Boston College has recently decided to return all the interview materials to subjects who request them to destroy copies, and they vow to continue to shield those who request anonymity. Kevin Cullen of the Boston Globe has been reporting on this story. He's recently back from Belfast, where he talked to a few of those who were interviewed. Kevin, hello. How are you? Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm well. Let's start where your story starts. Ricky O'Rourke, former member of the IRA, gets a bundle from Boston College. It's his words. It's his story. It's his life. And he burns it. Why?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, Ricky said he didn't know quite what to do with it. And then the police made the decision clear for him because initially the police had requested things only that were related to the murder of Jean McConville. She was a mother, a widowed mother of 10, who the IRA abducted, secretly buried um, after killing her as a suspected informer, uh, that happened in 1972, and some of the statements that were given to BC actually related to that. But then, after I think partly because the police were criticized, including by myself in several columns, that. They appeared to be politically motivated. Of all the crimes that were discussed in this archive, the only one the police were going after just happened to implicate Gerry Adams, the leader of the largest nationalist party, Sinn Féin, in, in Ireland. So I think in response to that criticism, the police then said they wanted everything. They wanted everything in the archive. And BC has said they will not turn that over, and obviously it's going to be subject to more litigation. But once the police said they wanted everything, that's when Ricky said he, uh, well, he said he opened a fine bottle of Bordeaux and he lit a fire in his uh, den. And if you've ever been in Ricky's den, it's surrounded by a lot of photos. Including people like Bobby Sands, who was the first hunger striker to die in 1981. Ricky was very close to Bobby. Ricky was the um, basically the spokesman for the for the hunger strikers during the 1981 hunger strike. And all those photos, as he looked around, all these guys that he knew, some who died, some who spent many years in prison with him, he lit all those records and burned them up, and had a nice bottle of Bordeaux while he did it.
1: Well, let's talk for a second about Gerry Adams. So, as you say, he's the Irish political leader of Sinn Féin. Uh, He was uh, instrumental in the uh, peace process in 98. And he was arrested earlier this year for murder, which maybe to an American sounds shocking. But in Ireland, it was treated as pretty much a political play. And he was released after four days. And actually, the few weeks later, there was an election and Sinn Féin happened to do very well. But in this story, was that arrest and how it played out? Was that a turning point of sorts for the Boston College tapes?
0: Beyond Jerry Adams, a guy named Ivor Bell, who used to be a commander in the IRA, he was arrested. There was allegations that he was arrested in connection with the Monconville murder. Uh, for aiding and abetting it, and that was based on information that was uh, in those BC archives. So clearly, the arrest of Ivor Bell and then particularly of Jerry Adams is seen as this this is the worst case scenario that prosecutions could flow from an academic exercise. You know, what I found in Belfast on the ground is that it is not an academic exercise to people. People are worried about their lives. Some are worried about getting arrested. Some are worried about being shot. And as uh, Tommy Gorman, an IRA veteran, told me, he's not worried about being shot by his erstwhile enemies in the uh, Protestant paramilitary forces. He's worried about being shot by guys in the IRA because there are people within the IRA, within the Republican movement, that view anything that was given to Boston College as touting, as informing as giving up information that only the IRA can decide to give up.
1: In the Boston Globe, there are pictures of a few instances where there's graffiti and the graffiti says Boston College touts. And touts isn't just a word that's synonymous with rat. It's often a death sentence.
0: As I put in that story that Ireland, there's a considerable respect for the dead. When people die, uh, it, there's, there's a communal outpouring and people make sure that they go They go to wakes, they go to comfort the families. But the dignity that is reserved for the dead in Ireland does not extend to touts. They are looked upon, you know, in the Irish consciousness. It was always the, they were the bane of Irish rebels for centuries. It was the informer. It was the tout that gave them up. You know, touts end up with hoods over their head. They're their hands tied behind their back, and shot and thrown in ditches. And it's uh, about the most ignominious way to die in Ireland.
1: So Jerry Adams said everyone has a right to record their history, but not at the expense of the lives of others. Should that statement be taken at face value?
0: He says this is just former comrades who have become political enemies and that they are trying to settle scores by using this stuff. So I think that's what he was aiming at, the suggestion that people were lying about him. that That's his contention, that everything that's been said about him that's been made public in relation to this case is a lie.
1: Neil O'Dowd, who is a prominent Irish-American newspaper publisher, flat out says that the project was meant to get Jerry Adams from the start, that the researchers behind it were just anti-Jerry Adams. And he doesn't take the kind view, I guess, that it was altruistic but naive. He thinks that at its inception this was flawed. What should we think about that?
0: Well, I think Neil's point is certainly a valid one, and, and many people share that point of view. I don't think that B.C. was out to get Jerry Adams. I think it's a legitimate point to say that they would not be seen as unbiased observers. And uh, Harvey Silverglade, who's a a civil libertarian, a lawyer, who writes an awful lot about academic freedom and the lack of academic courage, I mean, he wrote very clearly on this saying that B.C. capitulated when they could have been heroes if they stood up to the Justice Department that was doing the bidding of the British government and just said, we're not giving information that was part of an academic project by an American institution. We're not giving it to a foreign law enforcement agency so they can make a criminal case. They can go out and do their own investigation.
1: Although the other side of that, imagine if Trinity College, uh, which is not in Northern Ireland, but uh, in our uh, Republic of mm-hmm. Ireland. But imagine if Trinity College were doing a study or oral histories of people involved in the civil rights movement. And they had testimony about people who killed, you know, African-Americans or student volunteers in the mm-hmm. 60s in Philadelphia, Mississippi, say, wouldn't right. authorities in America really want to get at those tapes? And wouldn't they want to bring these murderers to justice? I would say they would. And I would also suggest there is. That extra element of, I know Boston is sometimes seen as like a province of Ireland, but still, it is a different country, and there's a little bit of uh, maybe some cultural insensitivities involved, too.
0: My, my response to that is that if Trinity College did that, they, they should tell the American police to go do their own investigation. Right. That's what I would say. Ac- academic institutions, wherever they are, should not be pseudo law enforcement agencies.
1: Kevin Cullen has written about this BC Oral History Project for the Boston Globe. Kevin, thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. If you care enough to know anything about Warren G. Harding, here's probably what you know. His administration was corrupt. He was an intellectual lightweight. He's usually regarded as the worst president in history. Maybe Buchanan, but probably Harding. And he was nominated for the presidency because he was handsome. Women had just won the right to vote in 1919. The election of 1920 would be the first with universal suffrage. But I never got the good looking thing. He looks to me like Lionel Barrymore, Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life, and that just doesn't get my engines revving. But now we get a glimpse to a sex appeal. A cache of letters, steamy love letters, have been unearthed. Joining me now is the Harding researcher and enthusiast who found the letters, James David Robinault. Hello, Mr. Robinault. How are you? I'm well. This might embarrass you to do it, so I'll start by reading one of the more tepid ones. If I had you today, I'd kiss and fondle you in my arms and hold you there until you said, Warren, oh, Warren in a benediction of blissful joy. This was written to Carrie Fulton Phillips. Who was she?
2: She was a neighbor's wife. They started their affair in 1905, the summer of 1905, and it ran for 15 years. This is not a Monica Lewinsky situation. This is a long-term affair, each one in a marriage that was broken and each wanting to get divorced at different times, but it never coalesced.
1: Would that have been really even possible, given his prominence and the mores at the time?
2: Yeah, No, it would not have been possible once he got into politics, and what happened is she was not ready to get divorced because she had a young daughter at the beginning of the relationship. Then she goes to Berlin and lives there for three years right before the First World War uh, and comes back. But while she's gone, he thinks he loses her, so he runs for Senate, and when he's running for Senate, then it's impossible for him to get divorced.
1: And during this time, did historians know about the affair but didn't know the extent of it and didn't know how flowery his prose could be? Or was the actual existence of the affair a revelation as well?
2: Well, I think it's pretty much a revelation in the sense that people didn't know the extent of it and how long it went on and the rest of that stuff. Um, Clearly, the Democrats in the 1920 election knew about it because she was being investigated as a German spy by the Bureau of Investigation.
1: And in fact, a lot of the correspondence that you uncovered, uh, it was about Harding telling her that she was being unwise with her German sympathies, and apparently Carrie Phillips trying to convince Harding to be on Germany's side in World War One.
2: Yeah, you know, World War One is so different from World War Two, where it's black and white—you know, wrong and right. So yeah, she felt very strongly about that and wrote him a lot of letters. He eventually said, "I know this is potentially going to kill our relationship." but I'm going to vote for war and do my duty.
1: Hmm. Upon reading them, even though you know these were, because the affair started in 1905, so these were approaching 100 years old, did you feel like, ooh, I should not be a party to this? <laughs>
2: yeah, I used the word voyeur. Yeah. <laughs> I, I felt a lot like a voyeur when I first started reading them, because they are really fallacious in parts. He had a tremendous sense of humor, and he was kidding her a lot, with yeah. sexual kidding. Um, including naming his penis Jerry, you know. These sorts of things, he never expected them to be seen by the public. And it was clear that those two had an extraordinarily open sexual relationship given the time.
1: Jerry with a G or Jerry with a J?
2: (laughs) J. I think it's after, like, the Tom and Jerry drinks that they had back then at holiday time, you know, it was kind of his festive, you know, self. But it's quite funny. I mean, he really is funny. And no doubt she laughed when she read this stuff
1: and so i will read you i'll read another one now honestly i hurt with the uh, insatiate longing until i feel that there will never be any relief until i take a long deep wild draft on your lips and then bury my face on your pillowing breasts listen i never had any respect for warren harding but th- this isn't bad this is like n- this is at least harlequin level steamy romance did it change your opinion of harding at all to read these letters
2: Oh, tremendously. I, you know, I come from a Democratic family who was very much involved in Democratic politics in Ohio. And after reading this and studying Harding, I have to tell you, this is a different segment than what you're calling me about. He was pretty good as president. He did some tremendous things as president. Really? First of all, he let Eugene Debs out of prison after the First World War. Debs was a socialist who ran for president four times. Very popular, very important to the labor movement in the United States. Wilson put him in prison for speaking out against the war and today we would call that a first amendment right. Harding let him out. One of the first acts he did as president and it was really uh, holding out an olive branch to the labor movement. It was very important at the time. He started the first office of the budget which is today OMB put the federal government on a budget for the first time and he went into the south at Birmingham Alabama and made a speech for civil rights that is second to none as uh, saying to all the whites gathered there who were separated by a chain link fence from the blacks. He said to the whites, Democracy is a lie if Negroes do not have political equality.
1: Well, do you think that maybe uh, the, it does reveal the intellect? I mean, he is flowery. Now, Herbert Hoover, who wasn't a great president, but was probably one of the greatest cabinet secretaries ever, maybe right. the smartest person ever to hold the presidency. I'm sure Thomas Jefferson and Kennedy give him a run for his money. But Hoover said of Harding that Harding had neither the experience nor the intellect that the position of the presidency required. It was always regarded that he was overwhelmed, that he was, you know, sort of a puppet of Republican politics, and that he just wasn't smart. Do these show that he was at least smart?
2: Yeah, I'll tell you, he was an editor of a newspaper, and I repeatedly had to go to uh, dictionaries to get definitions of words that he used beautifully. Uh, he had a very wide, very broad vocabulary. He spoke beautifully about a lot of things.
1: Do you have a favorite passage or a favorite one? Maybe one that was even too uh, steamy for or the New York Times or the Washington Post, which reprinted a couple?
2: Yeah, uh, there's one that I really love in which he uses the word propinquity. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you and I would not know what that word means, and it took me a long time to figure out the handwriting, but it means nearness. And. Uh, he was writing to her in Berlin. He was back in Marion, Ohio. She was in this great capital that was on, you know, on its way to the, to the First World War, um, running around with all these officers and so forth. And he says, "You ask me about my love, and you know, want to know whether it's true or not, and and you wonder whether or not you know, uh, love requires propinquity,
1: you know, nearness."
2: And he says, "I may be a fool about this, but I, I don't believe that's true. I think you know this." I I know a great love with you, and it is surpassing and, you know, the biggest thing in my life. And it's just a beautiful passage about his feeling and his feelings about love.
1: James David Robinault is the author of The Harding Affair, Love and Espionage. During the Great War, he uncovered a cache of missives between our 29th president and his lover. Thank you, James.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
1: And now the spiel. I was listening to yesterday's show, I Do So, in the name of quality control. And the show began with an account of me on a TV show. And, you know, I just got the sense that I was tooting my own horn. A horn was being tooted, and I, indeed, was both the tutor and the tootie. But I really got to thinking about that phrase. I would like to take two ticks to tutor you in the term to toot one's own horn. It is a strange phrase. It is a logically inconsistent phrase. Tooting your own horn has an opposite number, and that is to be hoisted by one's own petard. To be hoisted by one's own petard actually makes sense. I mean, it is antiquated language. It was coined by Shakespeare, but a petard is a small bomb. So to be hoisted by one's own petard means to be blown up By a bomb, blown into the air. It's a good phrase. A bomb, normally meant for someone else, blows up in your own face, lifts you high off the ground. Ashton Kutcher peeks out from behind the curtain. You've been hoisted. Great expression. I love it. But a horn is not meant for someone else to play. The expression, toot one's on horn, should instead center on a situation where you're forced to operate for yourself a device that was meant to be operated by another, right? That you're the one doing a deed that shouldn't be of your own doing. So a more sensible alternative would be, hey, listen, I don't mean to hold my own ladder, or... Look, I'm not trying to cut my own hair over here, or listen, I'm not trying to tuck myself in at night, or at the risk of critiquing my own one-man show, or far be it from me to hand-start my own prop airplane, or I don't want to self-operate a two-handed cross-cut saw, or I'm not one to spot myself while bench-pressing, or even you can stick with the musical if you want, hey, I'm not trying to play dueling banjos as a solo. And another thing, speaking of the musical, ever think of Louis Armstrong in this situation? How does Louis Armstrong humble brag about his own promise? Can't say anything about not tooting his own horn. And how did Adolf Sachs promote his line of instruments? I mean, the visionary Belgian surely must have wanted to trumpet, nay, saxophone his invention to the world. But how could he do so without a toot upon the horn of self-regard? And toot, really, toot? Toot? Did Miles Davis toot? Did Dizzy Gillespie To toot one's own horn is a low form of self-aggrandizement. In fact, it should be more accurately seen as a form of self-midsizement at best. The phrase, I don't want to toot my own horn, does in fact serve its purpose, but it takes a sideward path to get there. So to preface a claim with, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn, is indeed to cloak the subsequent boast with a sheen of modesty. Not because the phrase is an effective inoculation against braggadocio, no, but because the speaker, by the very dint of using that hoary phrase, I don't want to toot my own horn, covers himself in ignominy. I don't want to toot my own horn. Don't worry. By saying those words, you have cast such a pall upon any possible accomplishment that I promise not to be impressed. There are many other ways to engage in self-promotion, all the while avowing displeasure of any auto horn tutory. How about we ban the phrase totally? Yes, I propose a moritudium. And I beg you, if you must indulge in this begging of an indulgence, pick a better set of words. At the risk of executing my own murder-suicide pact, I could suggest a few alternatives. And that's it for today's show. Now, Andrea Salenzi doesn't want me to play both parts of Heart and Soul on the piano, but she is producer of Slate Podcasts. And at the risk of committing him to sing the Meatloaf, Ellen Foley, and Phil Rizzuto parts of Paradise by the Dashboard Light, I should note that Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. You can subscribe to us in iTunes and give us a review. If you are one of those people who knocks us down a peg when I sing, that was all about horn tooting and I didn't even break into song. So maybe you could, you know boost up the review a little bit we have a daily email that we'd like to send to you to sign up for that go to slate.com slash email we are on facebook.com slash slate gist. email the gist at slate.com and i hope you don't think i'm being my own coxswain in a four-man skull when i say thanks for listening